Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. The U.S. Department of Education says Pennsylvania has the most inequitable funding to public schools in the country. During the nine-month state budget impasse that ended in March, school districts were hit hard. Schools in the city of Erie may have been the closest to shutting down. Just two hours to the north lies the Canadian province of Ontario. Keystone Crossroads education reporter Kevin McCory is producing a series this week comparing schools there and here in Pennsylvania. And money is just one part of it. Kevin, welcome to the program. Good morning, Scott. If you have a question or comment about education, and this really opens your eyes, this series that uh, Kevin McCory is doing, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Uh, Kevin, I mentioned Erie, and that's just one part of, of the five-part series. Let me start with kind of the broad question. Why go to Ontario to compare with Pennsylvania schools? I think it's really just a complete paradigm shift, Scott. You know, we, we can get so caught up in the parochial nature of Pennsylvania's debate that I wanted to look a little bit outside of the state. And like you said, two hours from Erie is this completely different system that gets high marks on international tests, that thinks about these issues in a completely different way. And, you know, it's it's not exactly comparing apples to apples, but I think there are lessons to learn and things to think about for both sides. Well, and, and again, I'm talking in broad terms, but uh, what were some of the biggest differences that you found between Ontario and Pennsylvania education? Well, if you just talk about funding to begin with, um, you know, Pennsylvania's model is highly reliant on local property taxes to fund schools. So whatever school district you live in, chances are, uh, you know, you're reliant on what your local community can pay in property taxes to fund the quality of your schools. That starts the, the state at a, at a place of very stark disparity. You're going to have a lot of inequity between school districts based on that. State funding should come in and um, help level the playing field. In Pennsylvania, state funding makes up like a third of all the funding that schools get. Uh, but we, we don't really do it in a rational way that really is d- pushing all the money towards the uh, neediest districts. There's a new funding formula that does a lot of work to get there but it's being implemented very slowly. So between those two things, you can just look north to Ontario and see all of their school funding comes from the province. So all the money goes to, you know, the ministry and then goes out to the boards. It's done in a very equalized way. And then on top of that, they're they're saying, okay, what what school boards, they call them boards, not districts there, what school boards face the greatest challenges based on their student need? And that's where we're going to allocate more resources. Um, so, so just that philosophy right there overall, you could say, you know, Pennsylvania is saying, uh, you know, if you can afford to live in a wealthier school district, your kids will have better schools. And maybe that's a, a, a noble value. There they're saying uh, we are trying to equalize this and make sure that the kids who need the most help are getting the most resources. So there's just fundamental differences there. You mentioned property taxes, and in Ontario, they, like Pennsylvania, used to, and I say used to, and I'll have you talk about this, used to get much of their funding locally, just like we do here in Pennsylvania. Why did they decide to eliminate property taxes, and then how did they make it up? So that's a good point. I would say that this, these changes that Ontario has made have only happened in the past 20 years. So it's not like these systems were built from the ground up this way. So, so about 20 years ago, uh, it was a conservative government in Ontario that I think saw property taxes on the local level spiraling out of control. And as a way to 
limit that, they said, we're actually going to completely do away with the local property tax and fund everything through the province. Then a liberal government came in, saw that, and said, you know, we're going to make sure that we're directing the most resources per pupil to the districts that need the most help and support. So between those two things, uh, you have the system that they have there. The other thing that they did, key thing, is that we have 500 school districts in Pennsylvania. Uh, on average, if you take all the kids that we have in schools, that's, it's about uh, 3,000 so or so kids per district. In Ontario, they, they drastically downsized their number of districts. So they have about 27,000 kids on average per district now. So what that does is it makes systems that are much more uh, diverse socioeconomically, diverse racially, diverse uh, in, in all ways, so that all systems are kind of bearing a much larger uh, section of the public, as opposed to in Pennsylvania, for instance, in Southeast PA, we have a very tiny school district called Chester Upland. Chester Upland is five square miles of deep, deep poverty. It's almost all black, and it's surrounded by some of the wealthiest districts in the state. That just doesn't happen in Ontario. That wouldn't happen. There would be a district that would encompass all of those kids, and, that, and, and it kind of uh, shares the burden, if you will. Now, Kevin, I know you, you asked this question and you've thought about it, but the questions that are going through my mind, uh, you know, here in Pennsylvania, we've wrestled with many of the, these same questions and we don't ever seem to get anywhere. But I'll use your example, for example, uh, use your example uh you know, when you talk about Chester Upland, one of the poorest school districts in the state, uh, and some of those districts in Delaware County uh, around uh, Chester Upland that are all be- much better off, you know, those districts, what incentive is there for those districts or the people living in those districts to want to take on Chester Upland's problems? Probably no short-term incentive. Um, you know, th- that is a, a very difficult prospect for any family to make. And, you know, our, our paradigm based here, uh, it, it's hard to fathom what they're doing up there. And I'm not, I'm not advocating for what they're doing. I'm just saying there's a big difference and that they're getting better results, at least if you believe the international tests. Mm-hmm. And you so, so, go so I, would, I would just say that, um, you know, could there be some, some way to ease that for, for all parties? Possibly. Uh, but I think that, you know, it is probably worth thinking long term, if we're talking about the strength and viability of the state long term, with, without acknowledging really how we can do something better for really underserved communities, then we're not in answering, a- asking the right questions. About a decade ago, uh, former Governor Ed Randell proposed in a state budget address, uh, you know, reducing the number of school districts here in Pennsylvania from 500 to 100 or around that number. Uh, you know, he actually didn't really come out with a specific number, but offhandedly one day said, oh, about 100 would be good. But uh, as you just described in Ontario, 27,000 students per board compared to 3,000 per district here in Pennsylvania. And I know as part of your series, one of the questions you ask is, well, how's my child then going to get as much attention when there are 27,000 students in this district? And, and what was the answer? Well, I think, I think uh, you know, when we talk about um, the organization of districts, we're talking about leadership, we're talking about, uh, you know, back office stuff, and we're talking about strategies that include a wider segment of the public, right? There's still maybe the same amount of 
schools or the same amount of teachers. I mean, there could be some consolidation there. But in theory, it's not like there's less individual attention for students. In fact, in Ontario, it seems like there's more. Um, so so I, I wouldn't think that the real fear is that, you know, you're going to have some sort of overcrowded system of classrooms. It, it's more a, a matter of how can we think systemically about uh, all of the students in a particular region and how to serve them as opposed to being very parochial and saying, we live within this boundary line, we think about these kids, we don't think about those kids a half mile away. Mm. Uh, are there similarities between Pennsylvania and Ontario when we're talking about education? Um, yeah, I, I, there, there are definitely uh, similarities. I will, I will point to one that um, both are still grappling with. There's tremendous differences in, in terms of funding and some of the other things we're talking about, but you definitely still see achievement gaps between, you know, some of your, uh, you know, more disadvantaged students, especially poor or uh, black and Latino students compared to white peers in both systems. And, you know, that's troubling for, I think, people who might hope that having a vision of equity and having things financially be much more fair, quote-unquote, uh, that it wouldn't have produced tremendously better results in that regard. They do get high marks for um, what, closing those gaps between poorer students and wealthier students. But, like I said, there, there are undeniable gaps between some of those um, the racial subgroups that I think we, we have to question and wonder what they could be doing more, what we could be doing more in closing those. Just in crunching... In the, in the past few days, some of the Pennsylvania data on that subject. Less than 10% of all schools, elementary or middle schools in the state of Pennsylvania, less than 10% have uh, their historically underperforming students, and that means poor English language learners and special education students, that subgroup. Less than 10% have all uh, of those kids performing on grade level in math, science, and English. So for everything we've done, all the school reform attempts we've done in this state for the past 20, 25 years, less than 10% of the schools in the state can say that they have all those groups on grade level. What about in Ontario? Uh, like I said, the, the, the data for that exact apples-to-apples -apples comparison is not possible. Mm -hmm. We actually are much better at um, being transparent with our state data than they are. Uh, and I think that a lot of that traces back to the federal No Child Left Behind law. Uh, but there, there are examples within individual boards like Toronto that have studied this. And like I said, uh, they do better than us in uh, poor kids and wealthy kids achieving at closer to similar rates. But there are still some of these racial subgroups that have those gaps. And we'll get back to that a little bit later. But uh, there was a word you used achievement and how we measure achievement here in Pennsylvania and really uh, the American model uh, is mostly through standardized tests. How is uh, achievement measured in Ontario? They do have standardized tests. They just put much less emphasis on them and they have their kids take them much less frequently. So here you take it in third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, and then in high school. There they take it third, sixth, and tenth. Um, and then, you know, they say that the, the, the reason that they're having the test being taken is so that they can understand where they need to be doing better, and then they use that information to support their schools. That's, that's their ethos. Here, often, we look at the scores and say, 
this score is proof that this school is quote-unquote failing, and that means they either shouldn't ex exist or the people in that building are doing a bad job. Uh, those are two philosophically different points of view. Uh, I'm, not sh I'm not sure who's going to who's going to win the day at the end for the most disadvantaged kids. There's some proof there that in Ontario they're getting better results with, with their vision, but there, there's just a different philosophy there. That sounds like one of the biggest differences between uh, Ontario and Pennsylvania. Would you agree? It, it's, it certainly is, yeah. Um, in, in this climate, we've, we've definitely embraced the idea that uh, competition between schools and between sectors of schools will drive innovation and progress. And that has been most manifested within the charter school sector. And we have great examples of charter schools in Pennsylvania that have done great things. We also have very poor examples of charter schools have, who haven't done great things. And overall, we have a lot of school charter schools that have been copycat, you know, basically copied the struggling schools that we've already had. Um, so that experiment has kind of panned out in a, in a couple of different ways, and I think if you're if you're a parent with a kid in a charter school that's done really well, you wouldn't want to tr you wouldn't want to give that up. You wouldn't want to trade that. Uh, there, like I said, you know, it's it's all about how can we support the system as it exists. How can we build the capacity of educators, and you know, as their their director. Uh, the Toronto School Board Director, which be the equivalent of the superintendent, told me, you know, we we start from the from the point of view that everybody who shows up in our buildings to work every day wants to do a good job, and we need to do a better job of helping them do that job better. So, how do they do that specifically? I mean, here a lot of times when there is a low-performing school district, the idea right away is, okay, they need more resources, which is, you know, in a lot of cases, that is very much uh, the key to it. They need more money. But it, it sounds as if that's not just the one way they do it in Ontario. Well, it's, it, it's not. And, and maybe it's fair, too, to, to stop for a second and think about just the difference when the, the, the class day starts, right? So take Erie, for, for example. Um, you know, we talk about their per pupils funding. Uh, in in the entire Erie County, they're serving the most quote unquote difficult students to serve, students with the greatest burdens. But they're doing it with less money per pupil than most of the other wealthier districts in Erie County. At the same time, um, you know, if they were, if that county was in, uh, it was in Canada in Ontario where you have universal health care, where you have a uh, commitment to equity in housing, in all these other social safety net type programs. It means that when their quote unquote neediest kids show up to their neediest schools, they have far less deficits than what we would consider our neediest schools in our neediest cities. So that systemic approach right there makes the job much different. Um, so then what are they doing? They're targeting everything towards those populations that need the most support, and then they're bringing in more human resources. It's having, you know, for instance, a commitment to pre-K. So they, they've expanded to a universal pre-K program that has two educators in each classroom. Uh, so you might have two teachers to 20 kids. I mean, th that sort of uh, proportion in, in a very uh, disadvantaged community in Pennsylvania often does not exist or doesn't exist at all. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar.
We're joined by Kevin McCory, who is the Keystone Crossroads education reporter. Kevin has uh, produced a five-part series. You've heard uh, several uh, parts of that series on WITF this week, uh, talking about the education in Ontario and here in Pennsylvania. Keystone Crossroads is a statewide initiative reporting on the challenges facing Pennsylvania cities. WITF is part of the collaboration with three other public media organizations. To learn more, visit WITF.org and click Click on Keystone Crossroads. It's supported regionally by the law firm of McNeese, Wallace, and Newark. If you have a question or a comment, if you're curious about something that Kevin found in the Ontario uh, education system, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You also can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page. Kevin, let's go back to part one of your series where you're talking about Erie and uh, then Ontario is just two hours to the north. You focus a lot of time in Toronto, even though Toronto is much larger than than Erie. Uh, obviously, it is an urban school district, and you also go to some of the the uh, areas of Toronto where schools are located with a lot of uh, students that uh, come from low income backgrounds. So even though it may not be an apples-to-apples comparison, what are some of the things you found where the students are not coming from, you know, uh, well-to-do homes or even moderately uh, income, uh, moderate-income homes? Well, I mean, you talk about the city of Toronto, you, you have to recognize that it's one of the most diverse cities in, in, the, in, the, in North America, if not the world. Uh, you know, so you have gigantic clusters of different uh communities from around the world in, in different schools there. The statistic that just shocked me when I first saw it was that 67% of kids in Toronto schools, both of their parents were born outside of Canada. So, so you see how robust the immigration system is in Ontario. And it's just a much, di- again, much different uh, paradigm than what we have here in Pennsylvania and the United States. There they have an aging population, and they're very strategically recruiting people from other countries, the best and brightest in some regards, to come there to fulfill needs in their economy. So the way they view immigration and immigrants is completely different. And they're really, that trickles down to the school system where there's this ethos of valuing diversity, valuing multiculturalism, uh, an egalitarian approach to all these things. So, you know, you go into some of these schools where for instance, Crescent Town Elementary, uh, very, very Bengali. Most families are living on under $30,000 a year, uh, but it's an academic high performer, in part because of uh, this embrace of diversity and all these supports and all the things that we've been talking about. Also, it has to be acknowledged that the, the parents who are coming uh, from Bangladesh are very intelligent and have, you know, uh, ex- work experience and high degrees in their home countries that aren't exactly translating into uh, the similar jobs in North America. But there is a value of education that then the school is tapping into. They reach out and say, you know, these p- these parents in this community respect and, uh, you know, appreciate education. What can we do to leverage that to make the school in this community better? And I think that's a clear lesson 
uh, for us that Ontario has done, especially in some of the communities that we have where we have very high levels of, of, of immigrants. You know, here in Pennsylvania, in many of our urban districts, and I think about Reading in particular, uh, but there are other urban districts across the state that uh, face this same challenge. And that, that is a high percentage of students where English is not their first language. When you're talking about immigrant children in Ontario, how do they deal with that where you have so many immigrant children that uh, English, and I don't know how much French they get into in Ontario, but that is not their primary language. Right. I mean, that's it's a big hurdle for a lot of those schools, as it is for our schools here. Um, you know, I would say, again, to, to start the conversation at the way they think about allocating their resources. So both at the uh, province level and then at the district level, when they're deciding how to give money to to both boards and schools, one of the things in that formula is, uh, do the students speak English as a first language? And if they don't, there's more of a resource allocated there. Were their parents born outside of Canada? If they were, there's more of a resource allocated there. Uh, Some of that, like I mentioned, is happening at the fringes of Pennsylvania's funding model, but it's, it's a very small percentage of the whole. Where there, there's an acknowledgement that if we expect to get uh, results and performance out of these populations, we need to be very strategic in how we allocate resources and not just money, but people and time and all the things that go into making a school work. So just to clarify, you said earlier that uh, those students that are coming from other countries are performing, for the most part, performing well in school. Well, so I was speaking specifically about Crescent Town Elementary. Oh, okay, okay. And, but yes, I mean, they do have... Uh, certain uh, certain demographics there that have, and if you look at the international data, uh, you know there, there's a <clears throat> test taken every few years called the PISA exam. It tests 15-year-olds across the world. That's a test that Ontario and much of Canada performs very, very, very well on. Uh, United States falls in the middle of the pack. Let's uh, we- and just and just to put a cap on that point, they, they studied this idea of immigrants, and what they found is. Canada specifically has done a great job of getting its immigrant communities up to speed faster than other nations, almost every other nation around the world. Mm. We've gotten several questions from listeners, I see, about teachers. And uh, we're going to take some phone calls here in just a moment. But uh, teachers and how they're trained in Canada and Ontario is much different than we have here in Pennsylvania. From your series, from the, you know, the segment you did on uh, teachers and how they're trained and the number of students getting into teaching here in Pennsylvania compared to Ontario, another big disparity here, big difference here. Talk about that. Sure, sure. So uh, here, you know, you can become a teacher traditionally by get your bachelor's degree and maybe at the same time you're working towards a teacher certification through a teacher preparation program within a college. You can complete that all within four years and, in theory, uh, you know, graduate, have a job interview, get a job. There, you have to complete your bachelor's degree, then you have to complete a whole second uh, phase of teacher preparation. That used to be a one-year program. They recently have made it a two-year program. So that's essentially two extra years of school. Then when they finish that, because there's such an oversupply of teachers there, Uh, What a a person typically has to do once they graduate that second program is become a substitute teacher in a board, then become a long-term substitute teacher, and then maybe when something opens up, they'll get a job. The whole process 
that process alone can take a year or two years. So there's much more of an induction time. And there's much more practice, and there's much more, in theory, uh, a system that's readying people to be in classrooms. Here, I, I talked about the traditional route to get there, but we also have what are known as emergency certifications. So, so Scott, I, I didn't go to uh, you know school for, for teaching or education, but if I wanted to become a teacher, I could join one of these uh, uh, emergency certification programs and, in theory, be in a classroom in six weeks. It could happen. It happens all the time, um, especially in districts that face a really great challenges and obstacles and have a lot of vacancies. Now, you can argue that that's, that's a good thing because it allows people who are really talented in other careers to say, I want to give teaching a chance and I, I shouldn't have to jump through all these hurdles. But it, it just is um, a difference in the way they think about their teacher training programs versus the way we think about ours. And I guess I would say the other thing, if you do look at the districts that face the greatest obstacles and you just look at the way it pay and salary incentivizes where people want to be, it's very, very clear and stark in Pennsylvania, pick a county and then pick the neediest district in that county. If you're a teacher and you want to make less money, you teach in the neediest district. Uh, same thing in the five-county region of uh, Philadelphia, Box, Montgomery, Chester, Delco. If you want to make the least money, you teach in Philadelphia. Um, so there, because the funding is centrally allocated through the province, there's much less of a uh, gap in pay between boards. So if we're just talking about fiscal incentives to how to get people talented people to teach and stay in our neediest, most difficult schools, uh, we're not doing that. Hmm. Let's take a phone call from Kellen in York, and he has a question about teachers. Kellen, you're on the air. Good morning. My question, of course, in Pennsylvania especially is uh, what role did the union play? All of the things you just described, I can just see union leaders shuddering um, about that um, process. And if you did have unions, how were contracts negotiated, by region or by the whole area, um, et cetera, et cetera. We can't even get a unified school calendar in York County because of the unions, let alone everything else. Uh, please address that issue. Thank you. Sure. Thank you for your call. What about that? Unions are strong here. They were very strong there as well, um, and there has been labor strife over the years in Ontario. There have been strikes. There's, there's been pushback. There's been disagreements at every turn. Uh, you know, I, I'm not a foremost expert in, in the uh, teacher unions in Ontario, admittedly, but what I have learned from, from folks there is that I think because systemically there is this uh, spirit of respect for educators in Ontario, especially coming from the education establishment there, that maybe the wheels are greased a little bit more than they can be in what's in some places in Pennsylvania can be a toxic conversation. But one thing you did find, you, you talked to several teachers who complained that, um, you know, like here in Pennsylvania, that seniority of, of teachers, uh, that that's how a, a lot of employment was decided sometimes, that if there were to be cuts, uh, that, you know, the, 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 the teacher who had the least amount of experience would be the first to go, right? Absolutely. And, and Scott, like, you know, this series is not is, is not sunshine and roses in Ontario. It's looking at the two systems and trying to acknowledge the strengths and weaknesses. And so that I was very specific in pointing out 
some of the complaints I was hearing from people in Ontario as well. So like you mentioned, the seniority system there is very, very strong, stronger than it is here. And you have a lot of educators uh, complaining about that, saying, you know, this A, is, is doesn't, this isn't putting the best people in buildings. Uh, this isn't allowing the best decisions to be made. Uh, and on and on, you have other people who, who would say, you know, maybe there does need to be some uh, more drastic sh staffing shakeups in, in these buildings than the current system allows. Uh, so, so you have a lot of the same debates happening there as, as we do here. Uh, the scale is a, is a little different. I mean, it, it, one of the things that, you know, almost everybody I talk to there, you talk about their system, you know, you can look at the data, it clearly uh, bears out what I'm, what I'm saying, but they'll, they'll say, oh, who are we? We're, we're, no, we're no amazing group of people. We have our own struggles. We have our own problems, and we're just trying to move the ball a little bit further. So everybody everywhere, you know, is looking at themselves, looking at their flaws, and trying to get to a different place. Uh, Ontario is in a different place than we are, but they have their own set of issues and problems as well. Uh, Kevin, one final question. Uh, other than technology, Pennsylvania education its students much the same as we did, I don't know, you could say 50 years ago. What incentive is there to change? Here in Pennsylvania? Yes. Mm. Um, probably very... <sighs> what incentive is there to change, Scott? Uh, I, I think that if we want to make a commitment to the, the students in this state that face the greatest burdens and we think about how that's going to affect... Uh, the rest of us who live in this state and, and you know, thrive in, in this econ economy or don't, uh, public education is, is the place that can be the linchpin for that. So that that's what's at stake, right? Um, and, and maybe that's an incentive to a lot of people to try to go for change. I'm absolutely uh, understanding that there's there's not an incentive for a lot of people. The current system works really well if you, you know, live in a wealthier district and you're a family of means. Your, your schools uh, are, are doing well and, you know, your family's doing well and you have a safe place to send your kids. It, it, it's really a question of do we think that we need to do something better for the whole? Kevin McCorian, love the series. And you can, again, you can hear it on WITF all this week and uh, go online, Keystone Crossroads, hear it as well. Uh, Kevin, thank you very much for being with us today. Kevin McCorry is the Keystone Crossroads education reporter. And, uh, yeah, it's it's always, um, I don't know, I always find it fascinating to find out what they're doing in other states and, in this case, another country, another province, that uh, maybe there is something that we can learn to uh, improve our system. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. The American Talent Initiative, which was announced yesterday, will feature, feature 30 of the nation's top universities and colleges collaborating to enroll low to moderate income but talented students to 30 of the nation's top institutions. Franklin and Marshall College President Dan Porterfield is leading the historic effort that includes schools like Harvard, Princeton, Duke, and Stanford. And joining us today is Dr. Porterfield. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Scott. Great to be back. This kind of fits right in. This is a whole education-themed program, but uh, if you have a question about uh, higher education and low-income to moderate-income students, but uh, talented students, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Before I get you to explain the program, uh, you know, I, I just mentioned to you all fair that 
there are many of the same themes that Kevin McCory was talking about uh, with what we need to do in Pennsylvania, what they're doing in Ontario when it comes to low-income students or the talented students, you know, some of the school districts that don't have its most resources. On the higher education level, how do you look at that? I mean, you said you have to work with school districts. Yeah, the, the most important thing is for higher education not to think of itself as an island unto itself, but rather to be building bridges of partnership with schools and scholarship programs and you know, enrichment programs uh, all around our state, all around the country. Uh, we exist in a dynamic relationship with pre-K through 12 programs and need to be doing a lot more to support the efforts of teachers all across our state and across the country to, to produce great student learning. Now, you just mentioned a few, but I mean, at FNM, what do you do? I imagine it's mostly school districts in Lancaster County. Oh, no, we're, we're all across the state. All across we, the state? Okay. Yeah, we run a, a major program that's called the Pennsylvania College Advising Corps, through which I have 25 full-time employees who are all young college graduates working in underserved schools as college advisors all across the state. And last year, those advisors helped 7,500 Pennsylvania students learn about their college options, fill out the financial aid forms, and enroll in college. Um, that's one of our major efforts. We also, in Lancaster, run a program called Squash Aces that helps students for six years, from seventh grade to twelfth grade, prepare for college. And we run a free summer program called F&M College Prep, in which we give 70 low-income students the opportunity to have a free three-week experience learning from our faculty and seminars and from our upper-class students about college adjustment and college opportunity. So there's no one way a school should work to promote high-quality learning in public education, but we're trying to do as much as we possibly can. You know, you, you, and we're going to be talking about, about this once we get into the discussion of the initiative. But uh, we may have some listeners who would say, okay, why all this emphasis on low-income students? Well, the emphasis is on all students, but it's important that we recognize that in our country, lower-income students who achieve at high levels sadly often get missed by the top schools for which their credentials could earn them admission. There was one very important study done by a scholar named Caroline Hoxby out of Stanford a few years ago that showed that there were 50,000 students every single year who have come from low-income families, but meanwhile, they have a 3.5 GPA and their SAT scores are in the top 10% of the country, and that those 50,000 students do not enroll in any of the top 200 or so colleges for which their credentials would gain them admission. This is important for several reasons. First, those schools have the highest graduation rates, and it's critically important for students of all backgrounds, not just to go to college, but earn a degree. Secondly, every student benefits, all students, whatever their income level, when talented students are recruited into the student body. Financial aid is an academic investment in every student's learning. 
Okay, so that leads right into our discussion of what happened yesterday, and it's been happening at F&M for some time now, but now we have a national, the American Talent Initiative. What was the impetus behind this? Well, Franklin and Marshall embarked upon a very uh, innovative strategy about six years ago called the Next Generation Initiative, in which we doubled our need-based financial aid and built partnerships to schools that serve low-income and moderate-income families all across the state and all across the country. Some of our uh, national partners include schools in Miami, Houston, and California. Um, But we're all through the state, especially through that advising program I told you about in which we advised 7,500 students last year. And by doing that, by investing in financial aid and building pipelines to students and communities, we have really strengthened Franklin and Marshall student body. We have just tremendous kids coming to the school from uh, from from York, uh, from Everett, PA, uh, from outside of Gettysburg, um, from uh, from Lancaster, and these students receive financial aid um, and are achieving academically, you know, at the top of the school. So there's been a lot of national attention to Franklin and Marshall's Next Generation Initiative, and over a few years. Bloomberg Philanthropies offered to help expand it to other institutions if we were willing to share what we've learned, uh, our success stories, and the things that we would like to do better in the future. And so essentially, this effort, the American Talent Initiative, is an invitation to many more schools to follow the playbook that we're you know, that we're still working on. Mm-hmm. And when you say uh, talk about the Bloomberg Philanthropies, uh, that we're talking about Michael Bloomberg, former uh, mayor of New York, one point seven million dollars, uh, you know, he is putting into into this program. Yeah. So what he's done is he's he has funded um, a uh, kind of a um, I guess I'll call it a, an affinity group um, of leading institutions, that, and we've set a national goal for the country we would like to help facilitate 50,000 more low-income students attending colleges or universities that have a 70% or higher graduation rate. And we think doing that will help the students, their communities, the schools, all the students in the schools, and society. What we announced yesterday was the first 30 of those 270 institutions. Our plan is to expand that over the next two years so that many more top institutions join this effort. And we think that getting Duke and Stanford and the University of Texas, Austin, and University and Ber- Berkeley, um, and Harvard, and Yale, uh, and Williams, and Amherst, and Franklin, and Marshall as the lead institutions will attract many more institutions of various size and various locations. Why would the institutions want to become involved? Because there's so much talent out there, this initiative will help every school identify students like Sheldon Ruby from Everett, Pennsylvania, a Franklin and Marshall senior who just won uh, this very sort of prestigious uh, fellowship to send him to graduate school uh, for two years to study international affairs or to attract um, students like Sarah Soto from Lancaster who has studied abroad the last two summers combining uh, sort of peace studies with psychology as she develops her own new theory of how um, psychologists can promote social good. Uh, There's so much talent out there around the country waiting to serve. And every institution is ultimately about creating the most dynamic educational environment possible. But it's not right and it's not smart for the country 
that if you look at those 270 schools with the highest graduation rates, which have more than 2 million students in them, only 22% of their students come from the lower 45% of the American income spectrum. And this initiative is about correcting that, not because the students are low income, but because they're talented. Let's talk about that. Talented takes many forms. And for this initiative, how would you define talent? Who are the talented students out there? Uh, that's a great question. So talent, uh, to me, when I recruit people to work at Franklin and Marshall College um, or when I um, support uh, nonprofit institutions that help people grow and develop is about is the capa- all the capacities that we bring to problem solving and to learning. It includes our intellectual ability, uh, our determination, our optimism, our, our persistence, our ability to get up off the mat after a setback and power forward, uh, our ability to work hard. All of that is a part of how Franklin and Marshall College defines talent. Now, I admit that Harvard or Rice or the University of Washington, all members of the ATI, might have their own definitions of talent. One thing that's not uh, sort of controversial, an objective fact, is there are tens of thousands of students with very high grades and very high test scores who are not going to the institutions that have the best financial aid, the highest graduation rates, and the strongest record of propelling students into lives of professional impact. This initiative is about making sure that we don't have a caste system in higher education where the leading schools somehow miss the talent of all these great kids in rural, urban, and suburban America. I want to go back to our first segment where we were talking about uh, public school districts where there are not a lot of resources. Uh, you know, all those districts, uh, you know, they, they're not equal, put it that way, not just in resources, but even in performance. You can have some very talented, some students who perform very well in a district which overall is low performing. So I guess my question is, are those students prepared to go on to some of these top colleges and universities? That's a great, another great question. I and, make a living doing that. Yes. I, I, <laughs> uh, uh, so, you know, there's a, there are some ways to measure that objectively, uh, which is to look at the students' grades, look at their standardized test scores, and be able to see, using that more narrow definition of talent, who is clearly academically ready. Mm-hmm. And as I said, the Stanford research says there's 50,000 students a year who, irregardless of where they go to school, have, are prepared academically. There may be other qualities of talent and other needs to support those students that have to be understood. But the talent is out there, and we shouldn't penalize students because, by some measures, their schools seem to have you know, low um, student success levels. Now, one way that we're addressing this is by improving college advising. And I told you a moment ago that we run the Pennsylvania College Advising Corps, which is really helping students learn about outstanding fit for them. We also are part of a Bloomberg-funded initiative called College Point, in which there are um, something like 100 counselors, 10 of them working at F&M, advisors who are working electronically through digital media um, to provide virtual advising to top students in far-flung places all around the country. The students are referred to the program 
by the college board, which runs the SAT. And the F&M advisors and advisors at other schools are then helping students whose schools are so far away that we can't even send a counselor to the school, still get the college advising they need. And it was very exciting to learn uh, in the New York Times article the other day about one of those students who's, a student who's now at Stanford University who received his, his college advising through our online program that Bloomberg Philanthropies created. And you know, just what uh, President Porterfield mentioned, I mean, and this is just a barometer of how important this is and how historic this is. Uh, there were feature stories. Uh, there was an editorial in the New York Times, but feature stories in the Washington Post and Philadelphia Inquirer just in the, the last couple of days about this. Let's talk about how the American Talentive, a Talent Initiative works. Just how does it work? Well, so... Uh, of the first 30 members of the of the program, which include Lehigh here in Pennsylvania also, um, each member will commit to increasing its efforts to recruit, support, educate, graduate, and launch top students from low-income backgrounds. We'll meet regularly to share what we're doing and what we can learn from one another. You know, there's great work being done at big institutions like UT Austin or, or Ohio State University that schools like Franklin and Marshall and Davidson say founders can learn from. Um, so we'll share promising practices. We also will together publish four studies a year that show the country as a whole where the talent is, how to reach that talent, and how to make sure we finance financial aid. It's possible that in some institutions around the country, they'll think, well, we would like more lower income top students, but we don't know where they are. We don't know how to put the money into financial aid. This inform the, the American Talent Initiative will share the, all the learning that has come out of whether it's Princeton or Stanford or Franklin and Marshall. All the schools that are really succeeding at doing this work that want to do more are also going to completely open our books and share what we've learned so far. But wh why would you do that? And the reason I ask, I mean, the reality is, is that whether F&M is competing with a Princeton or a Davidson or, you know, some of those schools that geographically, there's some distance away, you are competing with local, uh, you know, non-public, private uh, colleges and universities, and even some of the public universities. I mean, that's the reality is that you are in competition for the best students. Exactly. We now must compete not against one another, but compete together to give more students the opportunities they've earned. If higher education can't do that, if we can't worry less about competing for prestige and ranking and competing more for social impact, then we have lost our way. And what this initiative is about is unlocking the power of the top institutions to work together and to learn from one another. And, you know, I can't wait till we start these meetings because I'm going to be able to talk about, you know, kids like Emily Lee and Kristen Nguyen, who, who are first-year students uh, from McCaskey High School, now at F&M. Uh, uh, families immigrated from Vietnam. Both of them, when I met them this year, said that at, in their school and in their home community, Franklin and Marshall College is viewed as a place of honor, and it's an incredible achievement for them to be there. And their families are so proud. Well, why can't we work together so that more kids from more communities all across the state have that same feeling that their kids have been propelled into opportunity at a very top school? Two things. Uh, one, there already are Pell Grants out there for, you know, some financial aid for 
uh, low-income students. That's that's one thing. But something you touched on that I, I think is very important, and you've talked about how F&M is dealing with this, but some of these schools, there aren't even guidance counselors. And just the two students you mentioned from McCaskey, um, you know, many students, low-income students coming from poor school districts say, you know, there's no way I can get into an F&M. I can't even consider that a Harvard, a Princeton, a Stanford, a Duke. And they don't even think about it. Well, that's why I've got this small army of advisors working throughout Pennsylvania in 25 schools, uh, sending exactly that message. You can do it. It's also beautiful to see philanthropists step up and support the funding of schools themselves. For example, I'm the chair of the board of the Lenfest Scholarship Program, which is throughout rural Pennsylvania. And Mr. and Mrs. Lenfest have donated $30 million to allow us to send 20 rural students per year to top institutions around the state and around the country. And at F&M's campus, uh, Ann Barshinger, who is our greatest philanthropist, has a cohort of five scholars that she mentors personally. Um, one's name is Misha Rodriguez from, uh, from Ephrata. One is Michelle Bailey from Juniata College. I mentioned Sheldon Ruby, who's the one that won the big scholarship. There's Coleman Klein from outside of Gettysburg and Tay Glover from, from York. Those five kids are knocking the ball out of the park. Franklin and Marshall is a better school because Mrs. Barshinger supported their enrollment in our institution. The other 595 members of the senior class have gotten a stronger education because Tay and Misha and Michelle and Sheldon um, and Coleman are in their class, and that's what education should be about. But what about what I said earlier about Pell Grants that are available, that there is some financial aid now? How does this increase that or expand it? One of the most important things that a school can do is to make sure that it invests fully in need-based financial aid. And that is what Franklin and Marshall does. Sometimes people say, what's the price of going to F&M? The price is what you can afford. You fill out the FAFSA form, and we commit that we will meet the full demonstrated need of every student we enroll through a combination of a grant, uh, a modest loan, and a work-study job, and then a family contribution. This initiative, the American Talent Initiative, is about helping schools understand the academic value of investing still more in need-based financial aid. And there's a lot of ways to do that. There's a lot of ways to move money within a college or a university towards the top priority of academic excellence. And if you care about academic excellence, you'll invest in need-based financial aid. By the way, the Pell Grant is a federal program that gives about $5,800 to a college for enrolling a student in the lower 40 to 45% of the American income spectrum. It's not a lot of money. The federal government has systematically you know, divested in that program over the years. Um, and um, But it still helps, and it's important that students get the Pell Grant. Uh, I think there's much more that can be done at the state and the federal level to support working families, modest income students, um, hardworking people to be able to have college opportunity. We only have about 20 seconds left. I want to thank you very much for being with us today. What do you want this program to accomplish? I wanted to send a message all across the country that by investing in low and moderate income students' college experiences, we strengthen the education of every student, we foster social mobility, and we help the country. Franklin and Marshall President, Dr. Dan Porterfield, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you, Scott. Coming up on tomorrow's program, we're going to be talking about something that's happening in uh, a lot more in Pennsylvania. That is, local municipalities that don't have their own police departments and state police are covering those areas.